In this episode, we speak with Steve Pearson, managing partner at Lovell Minnick Partners. Prior to joining the firm in 2016, Steve was at UBS, where he served as head of financial institutions investment banking Americas and global head of financial technology and services. Lovell Minnick Partners is a middle market private equity firm focused on investments in financial services, financial technology, and related business services. Since its inception in 1999, the firm has raised $3.5 billion of committed capital from leading institutional investors. Lovell Minnick Partners was recognized by GrowthCap as a top 25 private equity firm of 2022. I am your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you. Yeah, my pleasure, RJ. Thank you for having me. So, Steve, you've been in the financial services, financial institution space for a long time, initially in investment banking, then you moved over to private equity. But I was actually surprised to see that your roots with the folks there go back to 1995. Tell us a little bit about your earlier stages in financial services and investment banking. Happy to do that, RJ. And that, and that is correct. I first, coming out of business school, I first got to know the founders of the Putnam Level business, which was an MA focused boutique in financial services, financial technology in the mid 90s, and ended up joining them in, in 95. Spent about a decade with that business, ultimately running the investment bank at Putnam Level. And just ahead of them, actually ended up selling that business over to Jefferies as I was transitioning to move to Credit Suisse, where I ultimately ended up running the financial institutions group there for about seven years and then moved over to UBS in the same role. And in both cases, I was also operating on their IC for their balance sheet driven fintech investment pool that they both managed. But back to your original question, yes, got to know Jeff Lovell very well. In the mid nineties, we're close with him for about four or five years. And then towards the end of that four or five year period, he began to set up this business that became Lovell Minix. So it was originally PL Capital Partners when it was inside the Putnam Lovell business. And then he spun that out a few years later, and I stayed on the banking side. Given your longevity in the financial institution space, you've probably seen it evolve from a very close view. Tell us about what has changed over the years, the parts of financial services, the parts of fintech that have become more prominent over time, and and maybe other parts that have waned. Great question. Good observation. So I would say certainly in the mid-90s, if you look at where the average kind of financial institutions group was focused, you know, the bulk of what was being done those days was balance sheet oriented, M&A and capital raising for the big banks, the big insurers. So it was really about balance sheet businesses, heavily regulated businesses. And that's what drove those investment banking teams. What I started to see after kind of a few years into my career was much more of a focus on the periphery, if you will. So the related tech-enabled services businesses, the, the exchange businesses, the e-brokerage businesses, part of which at that time we were calling financial technology. I think that's very different from what people think of today, and we still do a great deal of financial technology, but it is a little bit different than the way people defined it in the 90s. 
We tend to focus, unlike in those days, we tend to focus much more on businesses that are non-balance sheet, advice-driven, distribution-driven, and business services around financial services. So that's been a, an evolution. I'd say the investment banks, particularly the boutiques, of which boutiques have proliferated over the past 20-plus years, they also tend to focus in a lot of these areas that would have been considered non-core 20-plus years ago, and I'd say now are the bulk of where the action is. Yeah, it's incredible. Some of these boutiques, one financial technology partner, Steve McLaughlin, has done an amazing job there. Yes, he um, has. You know, supporting the whole ecosystem. He seems to be omnipresent in that ecosystem. He is. Yeah, he is. When I think about where he spends a lot of time, it tends to be a little bit more consumer facing. And then, you know, we're very much B2B, not to say that he doesn't play in those sectors as well, but we tend to be a lot more B2B, non-branded, if you will, in terms of where we'll spend our time, payment sector, but really behind the scenes, you know, the banking technology sector, but really more the utility plays is where we spend our time. Now, tell us a little bit more about your move into kind of the managing partner role at Lovell Minick. It seems like looking at the history of the firm, the fund sizes have kind of expanded sequentially in a fairly methodical manner. Is your intent to kind of keep that going? Yes. Without referencing anything we may do in the future in that regard, yes, that is, I'd, I'd say methodical is a good word for us in terms of steady. We've been steady in terms of how we've actually deployed, steady in terms of our hold period. And we've really not tried to and have not attempted to accelerate in any way over the years. We're comfortable and our investment style tends to be very low leverage, which is you know, something that maybe wasn't in vogue a year or two ago, but it was starting to really pay dividends today for us as we move into a higher rate environment. But my move was something that was long discussed with Jeff and with Jim Menick, the other founder of this business while I was still in banking. And then six plus years ago, ended up coming over here to ultimately work with the two of them and then transition into this role where I jointly run the business with Bob Belke on a day-to-day -day basis. I can imagine someone with your stature in the industry can help pull in maybe a lot of your network, CEOs, founders in the industry that you've known for many years. And so it's kind of like a tailwind in the sourcing and, and both kind of the, the halo effect. Have you found that to be the case? How was the transition back in 2016 when you formally came over? How was it? Were there any surprises? Absolutely. And I appreciate you saying that. I think there are you know, a couple of observations. Bankers, particularly, you and know, I grew up as an M&A banker, tend to be eternally optimistic, particularly around their clients, you know, very much a glass half full type of mentality. Whereas you know, the transition has been, there is a tremendous top of funnel type of activity that goes on here, looking at new situations, trying to triage potential new situations as they're coming through the door. But also, we're incredibly active around these deep research projects and outreach into the various verticals that we're attempting to invest. And you really have to have a very tight lens around deals that work for you and deals that don't. And I think just trying to get my arms around, you know, what is a level minute deal, if you will, deals that have worked well here and why and what are those characteristics, that's something that just takes time to get your head around those concepts. I've had some terrific partners here that have guided me throughout. You know, we have a seven-person investment committee, so you know, none of us are making decisions on a standalone basis. We're all putting up ideas at the appropriate time and vetting them and voting on them. And, and it's a very thorough process, one that took quite some time to figure out. I think to your network question, RJ, it's different, right? So in terms of my capital markets background and really just the, the network being more New York driven, the firm continues to be Philadelphia centric, but also we've got a presence on the West Coast with an office in Manhattan Beach. It's a different network and one that hopefully, you know, we've been able to tap that's additive alongside, you know, the very deep network and relationships that the firm has developed over the decades. 
It's a currently very interesting time in the macro environment. It's a little bit of a guessing game as to where we head over the next several months to two years. Do you have some predictions or estimates on your level of activity, investment activity, as well as LP appetite? Good observations. I think level of activity, we're still seeing and pursuing a number of situations. I think certainly the amount of activity that's in the marketplace is not what it was at the beginning of the year or last year. Uh, there's still some very interesting businesses that we're actively talking to at the moment, but I think it's hard not to imagine from a macro perspective that the numbers aren't, aren't going to come down. You know, We actually own a business where we've got a good lens there. We have a business called SRS Aquium that's inside the portfolio, and they get involved with M&A transactions, some corporate, but a big part of what they do is M&A transactions around private equity and venture-backed businesses, and certainly the percentages of flow that they're seeing are off materially, you know, call it roughly 40% year over year. And that's very much along the lines with the broader business. So I think while it's often pointed out, there's a there's a great deal of capital available on the sidelines that's controlled by the private equity, venture and growth communities. Absolutely true uh, to the extent that this is more appropriate for the buyout community, to the extent that debt is a part of the capital structure you're typically using, uh, it is more challenging to get debt. Um, you know, that market's a little bit bifurcated today. The higher end of that market, call it 200 or 250 million plus which is a syndicated market where CLOs are typically ultimately the end holder of that paper, that market is effectively frozen at the moment. It's very difficult to get things done. You've seen some deals announced, bigger deals announced with seller paper, even debt effectively plugging some of the equity hole. What we see where we typically spend our time, which is more the direct lenders, the middle market space, it's a, it's a little bit more available. We're still able to get it. We have processes underway where we're, we're selling businesses, we're still able to get staples in place, which is encouraging. And I think that market probably a little bit healthier. That is a market, and I'll tie it to your question about just LPs and fundraising in general. You know, that's a market where the mid-market direct lenders do obviously have to go back to LPs and raise capital. These are products that are SOFR-based, you know, SOFR having replaced LIBOR, but SOFR-based products, so they're floating rate products. Very attractive to the LP communities, at least those that are allocating to debt. We see a lot of interest in investing into the direct lending space. So I think they'll have a relatively easier time than, than private equity venture growth will over the coming months and quarters in terms of access to capital. You know, there's been a lot written about and said out there in terms of the denominator effect. Public pricing has come down, putting pressure on the allocations and the holdings associated with alternatives. That's absolutely the case. You know, we see it across the board with with many of our LPs, and that just puts pressure on what they can do in terms of committing. And all of the large public funds, which are allowed, you know, by the regulators to comment publicly on their fundraising activities, you know, they've all talked about how it's been extended, whether it's Carlisle, Blackstone, or others, and and it will take them a lot longer to get to the numbers that they're achieving. We and the other private equity firms, as you may know, cannot comment on fundraising, but I think in general, what I see out there is it is a slower process than what would have been if you'd launched a fundraising exercise a year or two ago. We have a fair amount of CEOs that listen in on this podcast. And the area I love to hone in on is the value creation capabilities that a private equity or growth equity firm can provide to a management team. Are there like maybe one or two examples that you could share with us about a specific situation, maybe through the years you were able to really impact change on a business? Yeah, happy to, happy to. And I think there's different flavors in terms of how involved, you know, private equity firms get involved in the day-to-day business of their portfolio companies. We, you know, we're probably on the, I'd say the far end of the spectrum in terms of 
really rolling up our sleeves and getting involved both directly as board members and partners to the management team. And you know, and since we are not investing in balance sheet businesses, the assets of the businesses we invest in are the people. So we're, we're there to be solid partners and trustworthy partners of that team. A couple of things that we do generically, and I'll give you a couple of examples, is we will really bring to bear uh, our network, whether it's our advisory council, and I'll touch on that group in a second in a bit more depth, you know, or just the team that we have internally to assist in growing the C-suite. You know, many of our businesses just have not taken the steps to build out the C-suite to where they've got a chief revenue officer or a head of sales or a CFO kind of as required. That's a big part of what we'll do, which is help with our network, you know, find those individuals, find the right individuals put them in place and help put a strategic plan in place to grow distribution and to scale the business, maybe geographically. One of the things that Lovell Minick is best known for is our bolt-on approach around most of our portfolio companies, not all, but most have a, a buy and build type of model that they are learning with us. You know, we, We've got a big team here. We'll drop in folks to, to partner with the management team and help them drive you know, identification of targets, due diligence of targets, negotiations with targets, you know, structuring, pricing, the whole legal process of going after a bolt-on target. And we've done that very successfully, you know, 150 plus acquisitions, bolt-on acquisitions across two dozen plus platform companies. And we've accelerated that process, I think, very successfully in the last couple of years. We've done 50 plus acquisitions just in the last 18 months, bolt-on acquisitions across the portfolio. That really shows you the power, you know, RJ, of, of where you're able to pay market multiples for a platform, but the bolt-on acquisitions are done at many turns below what you've paid for a platform most typically. So those can be extremely accretive. I'd staple that with conservative use of leverage. We've always pitched that. Uh, we've always operated very thin from a leverage perspective, even when leverage was much cheaper. I think that benefits us well when we may want to scale up a bit to accelerate bolt-on M&A and take on a little bit more debt. It's benefiting us well right now in a higher rate environment as well. A couple examples I'll give is our advisory council is a group of 18, 19 individuals who are consultants to us and operating partners to us that work closely in, in identifying new opportunities. But then, you know, more importantly, and to, to your question, really roll up their sleeves and spend time as board members or consultants to our portfolio companies. They might assist with marketing. So we have woman Stephanie Shelley, who was a former CMO of Broadridge. She's been helpful across the portfolio in terms of ramping up digital marketing efforts. You know, most of our businesses, almost all, do not have a CMO in place. She may help them hire that person, or to the extent one or two companies that do have someone in that role, really help them level up their game in terms of the digital marketing and, and automated marketing outreach efforts and help them think about just new channels of, of distribution. She's done that with Passnone, our multifamily office. She's assisted with Deepool. She's assisted with SRS in, in many ways just to help those, those businesses find new channels of, of potential revenue, but also just improve their outreach. I'd also say, you know, we have examples inside real estate, which is a business in Fund 5, where one of our advisory council members, Steve Azonian, Steve's on the board there. He's on the board of a couple of public companies, incredibly instrumental in bringing two new partners in the past year, two very meaningful partners over to Inside Real Estate, Home Services of America being one and, uh, and Remax as well. You know, these are very big businesses with a lot of agents on, on the residential real estate front. 
where he had relationships and he brought them over to and, and opened up the uh, the doors for inside real estate to be able to show them the platform and the offering that they have. So a couple of examples there. We have other folks that get involved in margin enhancement, product pricing, folks that get involved where we've got multiple technology stacks coming together and really sitting on top of that whole process of the roadmap about how we intend to bring together those technology platforms. We've got someone dedicated you know, effectively full time working on that front for us across a handful of portfolio companies. Excellent. Those are great examples. Now, switching gears a little bit, did you go to Kempsville High School? Is that Virginia I Beach? I did. Yeah, that is. Going going way back there, RJ. Yeah. yeah, I know. I recognize that because my roommate in college went to Kempsville, and he always had friends visiting, so they would do this Kempsville cheer. So it's ingrained in my head. It, well, better you than me, because I, I think it's escaped at some point. I mean, I can tell you our mascot was the Chiefs. Beyond that, it was going way back. <laughs> I guess you overlapped at UBS. You overlapped with Oliver Sarkozy? No, I came after Oliver. Know him from his time at Carlisle, and, and he's obviously out. He's founded his own private equity arm business as well and was running the you know, financial services vertical of Carlisle for a period of time. So certainly am aware of him and track what he's doing. Last two questions. One is, can you tell us about a book that may have had a profound impact on you, or you can simply provide a book recommendation? Yeah, you know, this is one where I I do read a lot and this was a tough one for me to narrow it down. So I'll give you a couple of different buckets and you know, put a little bit of thought into this, knowing that you're probably gonna ask me this question. So I've got a junior in high school and one of the nice things about watching her education is you know, I do try and read whatever she's reading. So there's the standards that we've probably all read, you know, Kill a Mockingbird, Lord of the Flies, Gatsby, et cetera. There's some new things that I hadn't come across that I've read with her that I think are exceptional. You know, The Assistant by Malamud is one, you know, set in the 50s and really deals with some very difficult topics. And then The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lack, which was written about 10 or 12 years ago. Excellent book and biography of a really interesting situation I'd never come across. You know, I'd say more broadly books that just kind of stand out for me. Anything written by Neil Stevenson, you know, particularly Cryptomicron and Snow Crash, anything written by Eric Larson. Harrison Bergeron, not a novel, but a short story that I read in college by Vonnegut, exceptional, just in terms of thinking, particularly in this day and age, thinking through you know, leveling of the playing fields, if you will. You know, this, this story there takes you to an extreme, but you often need to do that to make a point. Really just a brilliant, a brilliant book. And then I'll finish up with, I guess I have to put in for at least one business book, which, you know, Intelligent Investor is the top of my list with, with Benjamin Graham. And then I would say, you know, of late... Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall, I have to say, and I read this pre the Putin move into Ukraine. It's it's brilliant. Written in 2015, read chapter one. If nothing else, it tells you exactly why Putin went into Ukraine and, and it predicted it uh, completely. I mean, it's just, it's an exceptional book. Last question. Can you tell us about a leader that you particularly admire? And it could be across any domain or field of expertise. I'll keep this to a shorter answer. So aside from the standard, my father, of course, is an exceptional person, John Pearson. Thank you, Dad. Churchill, uh, of course, and MLK. But I, I'm going to go to Andrew Carnegie. And you know, I read his bio many years ago, and it's just a fascinating individual. Came from nothing, pretty much gave away all of his wealth. He was the first or second wealthiest person in the world when he effectively retired in his mid-40s after selling his business, which became U.S. Steel, and gave away 90 plus percent of his wealth. And and you know, look around, look around the country, whether it's Carnegie Mellon or Carnegie Hall or dozens of institutions with his name on it, or what he's done for education back in his homeland of Scotland. I think just uh, uh, an exceptional individual had his warts, like everyone does, but a lot of lessons to be learned from him. 
great answer and, and and one add on to that. I was just watching an interview and I had not known that he was also the originator of TIAA to ensure that all teachers get their retirement and, yes. and pensions. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of I mean it's kind of amazing the number of institutions that he has backed and supported and even to this day, you know, continue to benefit from his uh, business acumen. Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you again so much for taking the time. Yeah, Archie, my pleasure. Yeah. Find this insightful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.